This week on the Eldritch Lawcast, we are talking mega dungeons, how to construct an entire campaign around one massive dungeon, and a new tabletop RPG streaming service, all that and more, right now. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one D&D podcast in all the spheres all the planes of existence on the divine staircase. Is that what it's called? Huh? Um, I don't know what I'm talking about now. I tried to dip into Faerun lore and it, it, my weaknesses showed. Um, but I have a question for you, James Haig. My name's Ben Byrne, if I haven't said so already. I'm here with James Haig, Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin. We're off to a good I start. you James were Hague. introducing yourself to James. <laughs> James Haig, I'm Ben Byrne. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's to, a pleasure to finally going? get to know you, right? Ben Byrne. just had this stranger living in my house the last uh, two, three weeks. Anyway, James, <laughs> as I ask all strangers, uh, what is the minimum number of rooms on a D&D dungeon to be considered a mega dungeon? A mega dungeon. A mega dungeon. Highly technical term. Um, To me, a mega dungeon is more described in terms of sessions of play than it is in rooms of play. Okay. I think a mega dungeon takes probably five sessions or more to plumb. In fact, hell, I might even describe a mega dungeon more in dungeon floors than in dungeon rooms, where it might want five or more floors to be mega. Uh, this is a very opaque term we're describing here. Uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, sort of variables to account for. Um, let's let's say for me as a very rough rule of thumb, fifteen fifteen rooms, fifteen rooms, three three five room dungeons stacked on top of one another. That's my bare minimum for mega dungeon. Okay, all right, well, as a bare minimum, that that reads uh, not bad. It's a little on the small side, I thought. I agree. Um, uh, but it's a bare minimum. Dale Kingsmill, uh, do you have a minimum mega dungeon size? Anything a bare minimum. More? I mean, come on now. It's got to be more than 20, more than 25 rooms, surely. Surely. How many rooms must a hero face before they can say it's a mega dungeon? I mean, it's got, it's got the prefix mega. That's a lot. That's, that's a big sort of, um, standard to set to call it a mega dungeon i need i need a lot of rooms 25 even feels too few to me sure you gotta you gotta be making random encounter rolls every 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 half session at least right gotcha constant uh all right well i've saved uh sean merwin till last because you may have the answer to this i'm not sure uh oh absolutely (laughs) technically speaking (laughs) What is the minimum number of rooms for a mega dungeon? 63.6. Uh, oh. I should have known. Yeah. I should have got yep. that, yeah. Yep. You need, for a four-hour session, you need about 10 rooms, with not every room being a full-on encounter, and then you need at least six levels worth of things to make a truly mega feeling dungeon so six levels worth of of play and then the 3.6 are the three rooms where the major enemy is at the end of the dungeon at the bottom assuming that you're going from top to bottom and then the 0.6 is the secret room behind the main room where all the treasure's hidden so it's 63.6 Okay, you've you've heard it. How here could third. I forget the secret yeah. room with the treasure? It's science, people. 
This week, speaking of things that are mega or ambitious, I should say, speaking of things that are ambitious, um, uh, general news this week, had a quick look online. There is a actual play TV network, let's call it, the Netflix of tabletop RPGs. That is what this organisation, I suppose, uh, is trying to be. They're calling themselves Dragon which I think they've overtuned the SEO a little bit there because it was really hard to Google them. Yeah. Um, Googling Dragon, Dragon D&D, Dragon Live Play. Yeah, really hard to find them. Um, but I found them in the end, uh, and they are a streaming service entirely about tabletop RPG content. They sort of have a, a to my understanding, conglomerate of shows on there at the moment from a couple of different content creators um, podcasters, that sort of thing. Um, and they are trying to build the one-stop hub for tabletop RPG live plays, podcasts, GM tip style shows, character workshops, uh, behind the scenes for live plays, all that sort of thing, which seems to me incredibly ambitious because Twitch and YouTube exist. Um, uh, Dale Kingsmill, as a Twitch and or YouTuber, is this, what do you think about this? What's your, what's your gut reaction tell you? My gut reaction, I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes because I, it is, it is not the first time that something like it has been attempted. Um, I, I have very strong memories of, uh, of geek content, uh, trends of the past attempting to make, uh, sort of you know, forays into the world of streaming services dedicated to those things, the Nerdist, Geek and Sundry streaming yeah, service, right. uh, as an example. I think the closest thing that we have right now is probably uh, the pre-existing college humor streaming service, Dropout, uh, which the the sort of flagship, potentially most popular uh, sort of material on it is Dimension 20, which is tabletop RPG content, but the rest of it is largely not tabletop RPG content. So um, the idea of having one platform dedicated entirely to live play material or, or you know, D&D &D tabletop RPG related material, um, it is an interesting concept. It's also a tricky time to be doing it because, um, I mean, we've talked about this before, the, the kind of oversaturation at the moment of uh, individual streaming services. Every production company has looked at the Netflix model, seen how successful it was, and then they decided, well, we could do that and just not pay anything to Netflix. Let's just do it ourselves. So we have a different user interface on every single app on the television, and it's a nightmare to figure out how to rewind and you can't find everything you need in the one place and it's becoming more and more frustrating. Piracy is back on the rise uh, after the the sort of golden age of Netflix. Uh, and we, we've ended up kind of with something that just rese resembles cable TV again, uh, where you're paying for a million different services at once. So it, I think it's an interesting concept. I think it's a difficult time to implement it and it'll be interesting to see uh, how it goes. I think the a related challenge to what you've just described there, Dale, is that actual plays have a kind of tribal tendency to them. And what I mean by that is you tend to pick your home team actual play and watch only that mm. just because actual plays are a big commitment in terms of viewer hours per week. Uh, critical Role, of course, is kind of the poster child of that, four hours every week. Though these days you have to look at the fact that they take one week off a month. They do that because of this exact problem, it's hard to get through all their content. They take a week off every month 
for their own benefit, of course, because they're doing much more than just streaming these days, but also because uh, the constant complaint is, how am I going to get through this much critical role? Mm. And so the the idea of there being a streaming platform that potentially uh, helps smaller streams find their audience, that's very appealing to me. It's very easy for a little stream to get kind of lost in the deluge of all the new little streams kind of coming out every every few days. Um, but whether or not it will actually lead to people branching out from their home team fave or even watching more than one or two streams at once, when Critical Role and Dimension 20, the two big owlberries in the arena right now, kind of have their own platforms already, uh, that's definitely a hurdle they'll have to jump and jump hard and jump soon. Yeah. Yeah, they've, they've got some strategies around that in place, which is interesting to see. They want to start producing live plays. We've talked about the, uh, uh, not the word has, skeuomorphism, there we go, of the form of live plays being these big three-hour uncut style things versus the traditional media style of our legacy media style of, of edited. I've changed of- language. <laughs> <laughs> you you you're basically our thesaurus on this podcast. So we, <laughs> you've you've educated everyone on the podcast and everyone listening. Um because they want to start producing live plays or they've said they'd start producing live plays that are like 45 minutes long to an hour long as opposed to three hours because that is absolutely a, a problem that live plays have. I also don't think they're they're really going to struggle with, um, you know, not, not, not just Critical Role, right, and Dimension 20, but like LA by Night, um, which I think is now their new season is New York by Night. They've kind of changed, mm. which is the Vampire Masquerade live play. Um, which is its own thing. They've got a vampire masquerade. I think. I think it's Singapore by night. Off the top of my head, there's a lot of by nights. There's a lot of by nights. That yeah, vampire masquerade is a very specific thing that I have opinions on. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, I wanted to ask Sean Merwin. I know you're not a huge live play consumer, but like, would you find this service useful for some of the other aspects in terms of like? Uh, dungeon master or or uh, industry people interviews or podcasts or um design workshops or something like that i feel like if there was an audience for any of this content be it live play or instructional video for dming players that wizards of the coast and hasbro would be more on it and it maybe there isn't there isn't the kind of revenue that they would want from the production that they would put into it because they have their own production studio now called E1 that is involved in not just gaming uh, related things, but movies and, and other things that, that are starting to come out. And I, I would love it if there was an audience for it enough to really up the production value because while i'm not going to be watching these shows to get dming tips anymore um i want there to be some there for people who who need them uh, people who are interested in getting into the game and wizard to their credit wizards of the coast started to create these videos here's the new beginner or the new box set uh and here's how you run the adventure in it that they've made those videos and they're out there 
And so I, I want them to do a better job of getting them out there. And if making a channel is a way to do that, then I wish they would do that, not to make any revenue off commercials or endorsements, but just to spread the word of D&D and teach people how to play the game. Mm. Yeah, that's there's fair. also something really valuable that you just pointed out was the production values, right? Because there there are two reasons to do this, as far as I can comprehend. There are two reasons to do this um, on its own streaming service rather than on something like Twitch, where where most of the popular live plays tend to go or new live plays tend to go. The reasons are that if you have your own streaming service that is directly getting subscriber money, you can put that money directly back into production values and hopefully put out a product that has much higher production values than you would if you were just doing this for free on Twitch and hoping to organically generate an audience over time. Um, the other thing is discoverability. And this is a big topic for discussion regarding um, live streaming on Twitch versus on YouTube at the moment. It's a really big kind of contentious point is that discoverability on Twitch, Twitch is the home of live stream. It's where, it's where people go to watch live streams. Uh, but discoverability on Twitch is abysmal. You have to have an audience elsewhere that follow you to Twitch, more or less. The The idea now in, in the, the current moment of starting on Twitch and developing an audience purely on that platform is, I mean, it's it's possible, but it's extraordinarily unlikely. The odds are overwhelmingly against you. Um, on, on YouTube, you do have um, some level of discoverability. Their search engine is powered by Google, so it is a, a much more advanced search engine. Um, but you still have that kind of I think it works It works better for tabletop RPGs that are less well-known, right? If I want to find a, a bubblegum shoe actual play, that's super easy on YouTube. I type it in, you get a handful of results because not as many people are playing it. It's not oversaturated. So the discoverability is there. Um, so so it, it, it's just those are, those are kind of the, the points that I will be watching out for when it comes to Dragon as a streaming service to see how audiences react to it. Because if you... If you have to convince an audience to move from YouTube to another platform, particularly one that you are paying for, um, you have to have a lot of pull for that. Now, Ben, can you tell us? Probably not, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I even ask? Um, can you tell us if Dragon intends to simply platform other creators or if they intend to do, do what Netflix do and create their own original productions as well. Ah, I see you may have run uh, read the run sheet uh, and softballed me there because uh, <laughs> written on here is that, I think it's written on here, yes, they are planning to do originally produced content. They talked a really big and really specific game about like ensuring that their uh, content creators... Who are, who are producing original content for them are fairly paid for their work. But they also talked about um, it being a revenue share style model after production costs were paid for. And as someone who came from the world of like semi-professional theater, that makes me extremely cynical. Yeah, uh, what revenue? <laughs> Exactly, exactly that. Like, you know, you might spend, just in the world of theatre speaking, you might spend six months rehearsing for a show or maybe three months rehearsing for a show, a couple of hours every week, and then the, the weekends of the production, your time is dominated by that almost entirely. And you might make a couple hundred bucks, two, two, three hundred bucks, you know, which is not 
an income. It is not, you know, paying for the labor. You kind of do it because you love doing being on stage and then you get a, a little bit of a, a benefit at the end, maybe. Um, and so also, what's the split? What's the percentage split on that revenue share? Well, exactly. Ooh. And they talk about like, you know, transparent contracting and we'll make sure that, you know, uh, uh, creators know what they're signing up for and blah, blah, blah. And look, for the record, I don't know these people. I'm not trying to like throw shade over Dragon or anything like that. It's like, go check it out. I put the link in the the show or the chat and maybe I'll throw it in the show notes. Um, it is dragont4c.com, um, uh, not just dragon.com because that would probably be taken by now. Um, what does that T4C stand for? Tender. It, it's, I, for care. What? I was making up things that it stood for. Oh, <laughs> I thought you knew the answer. Uh, I do know the answer. I don't know what specifically it stands for. So you don't a, know the answer. Well, it's a. Re- I know where it comes from. Let me put it that way. Okay, gotcha. It's, uh, gotcha. it's a reference to their, like, flagship live play, which oh. is kind of the group that started the, the streaming service. And gotcha. it's um, t- something for champions, I think, off the top of my head. Mm. Um, but yeah, they they worked that into the URL, I suppose, as a way of making it somewhat unique or discoverable. Yeah, Ben, very kind of you to think that I was not not only knowledgeable about what the run sheet said, but that I was trying to give you a layout oh. as if as if I would read the email that you painstakingly craft for us. Just because it's interesting to throw out there, they're looking at doing a subscription model, which has been described in the news article I was reading as a Patreon style model. So they will have some free, which when you think about it, a Patreon style model for a for a streaming service is basically the Netflix model. But I think the intention is to keep some some shows freely accessible. They've said they won't, like, put shows behind a, a paywall mid-storyline or anything like that. So they're trying to be as kind of consumer and creator-friendly yeah, as they, possible. Yeah, they do seem to genuinely be interested in... I mean, it feels wrong to use this in, like, an entertainment industry, but ethical <laughs> sort of consumer and labour yeah. practices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It I'll be interested wrong. to see how it develops. Yeah, I have high hopes for them. Speaking of high hopes, I have high hopes for the future. And what is the future if not the children? Uh, Because Wizards of the Coast have just started up a Dungeons and Dragons after school education program um, where they are providing free Dungeons and Dragons kits to uh, uh, eligible organisations such as libraries, schools, uh, community centres perhaps, that sort of thing. I assume this is in the States only at this point as well. I wouldn't assume that this is an international uh, sort of project, but I don't know that. Um, uh, the kit basically includes one copy of Stormwreck Isle, uh, the new starter set, uh, guides for club organisers, uh, tips for new game masters on how to run games, uh, and then I just love how very specifically it says one poster to promote your club. I just thought that was really charming <laughs> at the end of the the list of stuff you get. Uh, but the idea to be to, um, you know, push, uh, de- or not push, actually, that's maybe not the right word, but to promote Dungeons and Dragons as an educational uh, benefit uh, and as a social literacy benefit. Um, uh, Sean Merwin, are you, uh, you're behind this, I assume. Well, not behind it. You're not at w- Wizards, but you're. It was you. <laughs> it was you the whole time. <laughs> you're in support, I suppose, is what I mean to say. 
Absolutely. I am so in support that I downloaded one of the curriculum packets, the, the one through grade six through eight. And I read it. And overall, I like it. I think it's quite ambitious. Uh, and there are nits that I could pick with sort of how they are approaching it. But I think the tact they took in trying to get kids uh, into the game organically while presenting it as a game uh, is it was good. Sometimes these things tend to be condescending, I think, to the kids. But this is actually important things that you need to think about as a gamer that they are putting in piece by piece over like five activities, uh, at least the packet that I read. And to be honest, some of it was exactly what I do in my college class, which is like, okay, we're going to build the world now. What should we put in this world? And that was one of the activities that the kids are going to do. So right, it's, it's quite actually mature and it may be a little too mature. Um, sure. I also learned that the player's handbook uh, comes in at a reading level of 1400L. Now, uh, it's that's a short uh, version of Lexile, which is how you uh, how you uh, designate reading levels in in students. 1400 is college level, mm. um, okay. not just college level, but like advanced. So the player's handbook is an advanced read, but as the as the curriculum pointed out, kids actually enjoy reading this for the most part. And so if you have a hesitant reader, this may be a way to actually get them to try to read so you can gauge what reading level they're really at, right. as opposed to not knowing because they're not, they don't even want to engage with the text. So. Yeah. Is it perfect? No. But is it a good start? I think absolutely it is. Talk to us about your experience in terms of like running games for, for younger people and the benefits that you think this program could have, uh, you know, for younger people. There's a you know, I have a lot of thoughts as a past educator, but I'm just kind of curious as, as to yours. Well, I, I think it's just about engagement, um, just getting their, their minds in a space in which to absorb anything. And I think games are a great way to do that. Uh, and D&D is in a special position within that realm because it is so multifaceted while at the same time being approachable. Uh, so I think it's great. The, the kids that I have run games for already knew D&D. Sure. And that's, that's one of the, the problems of this is if you get kids who have already played D&D, this basic stuff of tell us about your character. What are the flaws of your character? Well, that, they're going to be like, I want to roll dice and kill ogres. While the other <laughs> kids are still trying to, you know, get into it. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, kids are, for, as far as I'm concerned, kids are just like adults. Uh, you have a wide range of them. And some of them you would prefer not be at the table. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, everyone's welcome. So let's let's do what we can with the tools we have at hand. The game that I run that I play with in my regular adult game, they're all children. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, physically they're, you know, 30, 40 years old. Mentally they, they're well under the range of anyone who should be allowed to like open a bottle top on medicine. But, uh, but I love them and we have a good time. So, yeah. I love this concept. I love the way the D and D is bringing 
its game into schools because there have been a number of people in the sort of broader D&D sphere that I've had the pleasure to meet at conventions over the years. Just in Seattle alone, uh, people like Critical Core, who use it as a psychotherapeutic tool, um, people who use it to help kids with uh, with learning disabilities, who are on the autism spectrum, to kind of teach, promote that emotional literacy that we've been talking about. There is a very famous, uh, famous within our niche, I suppose, uh, class at Lake Washington Girls Middle School, taught by uh, a pal of mine who uh, had a D&D club that got so wildly popular, it became several D&D clubs which became several D&D classes that were these sort of interdisciplinary programs using D&D as a chassis. And that's just incredible. I think at the risk of sounding like an educator, I think interdisciplinary learning is an incredible thing. <laughs> it, you know, tying subjects together in a way and not sort of segregating them into, and this is math and this is history, mm. that helps build those connections so that there's actual practical knowledge being learned that people that, that the kids can get excited about and being excited about something helps learning retention and all that. I also wonder if this makes D and D fundamentally uncool now, <laughs> <laughs> if it's being brought into the classroom as something that your teacher uh, tries to get you to play to discover emotional literacy, this isn't very rock and roll, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Loses the punk element. There, just very quickly, there was a video that's on uh, Wizards of the Coast website with an educator kind of talking about the benefits that they've seen in D&D for their students. And they're a very, like, relaxed, young-looking, easy to relate to, very good at talking to camera. I wouldn't be surprised if this person uh, was either, you know, somewhat media trained or, or had a performing arts background themselves if they were the drama teacher for how well <laughs> they were speaking to camera. <laughs> But you could totally have the cringy, like, some teacher rocks in with, like, cardboard claws and a dragon head and go, all right, kids, it's time to learn about math and adventures. And it's like, oh, Mr. Patterson, please stop. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dad, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, that, yeah, this, this, I'm uh, all the things. I'm very happy that this is happening. We've got all the clubs. And now this is like, it's nice that they're doing it officially, blah, 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 blah. You can all assume. Um, But talking about the interdisciplinary uh, concept, right, that's just so interesting to me because it was was reminding me specifically of a good friend of mine um, was kind of the guinea pig first year of a brand new high school in our area that um, had an interdisciplinary kind of model. It was a very unusual high school. Instead of having English class and science class or whatever, they would have units and they would study interdisciplinary things. So I I can't remember all the examples, but one of them was something like um, they did crime fiction and sort of forensic chemistry. Oh. sort of hand in hand, right? So so it was just little little things where it was like, we'll talk about this and this at the same time. And then we'll have our cooking class and this science element. And they would just kind of mix multiple subjects together rather than teaching them as one thing. Um, but in terms of that experimental high school, as far as I understand it, the high school's still there, but it's no longer experimental. Now it basically functions the same way as another high school does because mm. it, that kind of uh, thing is hard to hard to sell and upkeep on a on a 
big scale like that. Um, so, I mean, congrats to my friend who got to experience that and boo to everyone else who doesn't anymore. But um, but the good thing about a, a D&D unit uh, is that you can kind of slip that in as its own little, little morsel of interdisciplinary study. Um, mm. And you can do it earlier than you would for something like a high school or a university class uh, and kind of lay those foundational understandings and uh, and the critical thinking that is involved in is an interdisciplinary study that's a really hard word to say a lot of times um but i think that in order to make it still seem cool and fun surely it's an important element to to still be teaching the other things right so you don't you don't go instead of maths we're doing dnd because it teaches you maths you go let's play dnd as a fun like our session in our day and then later in the day we're going to talk about maps and we'll just call back to D&D as as a touchstone for you to remember how it works right mm -hmm. that kind of a thing hopefully would keep it from from embedding itself in students minds as uh we have to read and do numbers now mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think uh, at the risk of um making it of sounding like a teacher trying to make something seem cool i think that the the approach that i would take to that is exactly as you just said dale and not try to um make it obvious that it's like a teaching tool or, or anything like that because it doesn't have to be you know one thing that i think dnd does quite well um is sort of emotional literacy and social literacy with other people which you don't need to labor as a as an educator or as a you know carer or whatever you know like after school care or whatever situation you're kind of in where you don't have to be like now how does this all make us feel in you fact just, it's probably better if you don't exactly <laughs> you just play the game uh, and though you know it encourages teamwork it encourages um problem solving together and it might result in inter-party conflict that's confrontational in game but not necessarily outside of game which I was about to say because we're dealing with children, but because, as Sean has pointed out, adults can behave just as children do. You know, sometimes that inter-game stuff can spill out into the the real world, as it were, and that can be dealt with. And even that is part of the, the kind of, um, you know, social literacy learning. There's two YouTube videos. I just took down their name if you want to search for them because YouTube links are a nightmare. Uh, building emotional literacy through Dungeons and Dragons is the first one and leveling up reluctant readers with Dungeons and Dragons is the much more boring sounding second one. Um, they're about an hour Ripped long. To that each. author. Um, <laughs> an hour long? Yeah. They're, they're more like, they're, don't go there expecting like a, how to DM style thing. Cause it's not that it is much more about like D and D in a, it's a, they're academic. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, kind of not lectures, lectures. Like, yeah kind of um or conferences you know with a couple of different speakers um speaking about those things specifically so if it's a topic that interests you if you you know with people that are probably much more researched and equipped to talk about it than us um uh, uh go and uh check those out i haven't watched them myself so don't take that as an endorsement in case i don't know if someone says something weird in there but uh yeah i didn't have two hours to spare anyway Speaking of not having two hours to spare, because you're going to need a lot longer than that to prepare a mega dungeon, that brings us to our first email uh, for the week, uh, that email coming in from Mason. Uh, Mason is, well, a, a, a Dophilus, 
I think I got that right. We are getting to the mega dungeons. Um, they are preparing a D&D campaign. Their email was pretty short. They're talking about the Winchester Mansion-inspired uh, uh. mega dungeon uh, with 150-plus rooms, so quite a lot more than our, our minimum requirements. Uh, wondering like if there it. are, like, alternative approaches to this style of campaign that don't necessarily require mapping everything out um, and then general mega dungeon advice. Um, and then I think I threw in this last bit of the question, which is kind of, you know, building on that, the creating a narrative or a story, an entire campaign around a singular sort of mega dungeon. Uh, go team. I have great news for Mason. Just last week we mentioned it and I'm bringing it up again. There's a board game out there called Betrayal at House on the Hill. In this board game, the sort of uh, core mechanic of the first half of the game is that you explore a haunted house. And the way that this works is that there's like stacks and stacks of tiles with different kind of classic haunted house rooms in them. Oh, here's a spooky kitchen. Uh, you know, we've all oh, we found an elevator shaft kind of stuff. Um, but you basically you don't know what's going to be anywhere until you you move. Right. So you move through a doorway to an empty space of the table and you go, well, I'm on the, the ground floor, so I have to pick a tile that has a ground floor placement. And it will randomly generate the house for you. And it is deliberately meant to um, sort of emulate the, the Winchester style mansion, right? This idea of this higgledy-piggledy place that doesn't make sense. Some doors open to walls, you know, it, it all kind of jumbles in together. And if you want to run a mega dungeon that is specifically Winchester mystery house style, Without prepping every single thing, my recommendation is go mapless, go theater of the mind, and just literally generate that house on the fly. Because uh, I think more than anything, that will give you the feel of staircases to nowhere and, uh, you know, openings to, to open air and, and all sorts of bizarre stuff that feels a bit, um, a bit ghosty. Mm. Mm. I think that's a good call. I think uh, my... That would freak me out a little bit as a GM, only because I like to be pretty well prepped. If I flip over a tile and it says they're in the X room and I'm like, oh, I need this sort of monster. I hate like sitting at the table and flipping through the monster manual looking for like a stat block. Or, like I like to have everything in front of me kind of ready to go. So I like to prep ahead of time. But just as a, a slight alternative to that is if you have a copy of Betrayal, just putting it down, randomly flipping tiles to build out the mega dungeon and then kind of prepping from there, uh, I think could be a That's a, true. A I mean, suggestion. you have managed to create a high prep way of doing a low prep <laughs> <laughs> mega dungeon, uh, which I suppose is fair enough. Uh, you could also, I mean, I'm a big fan of folders with little, little tabs on the side that let you flip through them quickly and you could just have a separate thing for each room. And if they happen to flip the kitchen, you flip to the kitchen and you go, ah, there are two imps going through the pantry i don't know that's kind of fun it's got a jumanji kind of look to it where they're in there throwing all the that's bowls and cutlery exactly out. what i was picturing i'm so pleased that you said that. <laughs> then when you brought that up i was convinced you were gonna say yeah, i just play betrayal <laughs> dispense with all this D D stuff shenanigans shenanigans that was a much cleaner save <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh so okay mega dungeons when I think of a mega dungeon, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is a video game. I think of Super Metroid, 
Mm. where it is an absolute labyrinthine sprawl of several different biomes that you must kind of comb through to discover the uh the you know the boss creatures within but also to discover the unexpected interconnections between these seemingly discrete biomes uh the fun part of metroid is shooting through a wall in the sort of green and jungle like brinstar and finding yourself tumbling into a shaft that leads into the lava filled realm of norfair for example um and that's kind of the base that i start any large dungeon mega or otherwise from um and that makes me think in your winchester mystery house uh, what we've been describing here is a complete sort of random assortment of seemingly incongruous house zones all kind of mashed together. And indeed, that's very true to form for the Winchester Mystery House. If you want to truly go mega dungeon with it, you're kind of thinking of the Winchester Tesseract. You're thinking of the Winchester Hypermansion, where there is surely extra-dimensional nonsense going on. And in fact, it may not be one house. It may be many such haunted houses that have kind of been supernaturally folded in upon one another. And those sort of staircases to nowhere, the, these Escheresque locations, are bits of House A poking into House D. And, you know, with House C kind of tugging on them gravimetrically to make it twist and bend. Um, so if you think of several different houses with several different themes. This one is a classic ghost house. This one is a witch's lair. This one is the Frankenstein castle. And you can think of ways to have bits and pieces of each other kind of jutting into one another. I think that will create that sense of exploration that a mega dungeon requires. We talk about the exploration pillar of D&D a lot on this show, how it is often underserved. Uh, this is exactly where the exploration pillar of D&D comes into play, navigating a discrete space. Mm. Um, and perhaps the reason why D&D's exploration pillar often feels so underserved is because not a lot of D&D campaigns have you navigating a discrete space as a core pillar of its gameplay. Um, so if you're going to do that, I would really lean into the exploration aspect. Think of the means of traversal. How will you get to point from point A to point B. And in a place like this, you might have to go to point V before you get to point B by means of point A. Mm. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, my question is with Mega Dungeons as campaigns, how, and kind of moving a little bit beyond just the Winchester idea, but even, you know, like one that is li literally a dungeon or a giant castle or a whatever it happens to be, how do you keep them interesting when the party is spending so long in, and James, you might have answered this a little bit. I was going to say so long in the same place, and that's kind of varying up the different biomes and the different mm. feels and themes of the different areas. Um, but, Sean, when you're running like a dungeon that is meant to last session after session after session to really plumb the depths of it, how do you keep it interesting? How do you keep players engaged? Are the players going to be happy with the sort of find out what happens as you go and that's going to be the whole campaign uh if they're okay with that then i want to do what dale was talking about 
and I want to uh, make it up as I go along too. And we as a whole group can tell the story. And it doesn't really matter what the map looks like at that point, because we're just making it all up as we go and we can do anything we want. Now, sometimes you have players that are not going to be into that. Some players, whether it's because of their choice or their, their psyches, they want to know where they are. It could be within the dungeon or it could be on the map during a battle, but they cannot do theater of the mind in any way. They need to know. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you may not want to do that. In that case, what you need to do is you need to divide up the, the mega dungeon like Undermountain did. Each level mm -hmm. is its own story. And so you can engage with one story. When that story plays itself out, you have clues to the next story. And maybe within that whole uh, echelon of levels, there is one main story that you're getting little clues to the entire way down. So it's still a mega dungeon, but you have to do a lot more work up front to know your players and know their threshold of, of attention to what is going to be enough to keep them moving down through this dungeon, as opposed mm -hmm. to saying, well, you know what? I'm sick of going from room to room to room. Let's go to the forest. Sure. Right. Yeah. There's a great suggestion from Jay Pizza Beats in the, in the Twitch chat saying, put factions in the mega dungeon, which mm -hmm. is a good idea. You don't have to be the only ones in there. They can be a rival party who are also there to plunder the same treasure. There can be, you know, factions who live in that dungeon who are, uh, you know, challenges for your party to face that, that add those elements of narrative, those elements of story, even to something that is largely a, a sort of monster fight dungeon crawl. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing, sorry, yeah, go. Oh, the Temple of Elemental Evil is a perfect example mm. of that, right? There are the four temples. And if you try to fight every, uh, every temple, every church within that, you're going to have trouble. So you can ally with one or the other and help you get through this uh, in, in a more story-focused and role-playing way as opposed to just grinding it out. Mm, absolutely. The other thing that comes to mind that we haven't necessarily touched on yet is uh, the role of, I'm, I'm going to say it, resource management within a mega dungeon, right? Ooh, um, weapon degradation, yeah! To a lot of people <laughs> sounds mind-numbingly boring, but uh, it does call to mind there's a, there's a cool game that's sort of part of the old-school renaissance called Five Torches Deep. And the mm -hmm. idea of it is just that, you know, you have to account for stuff like food and torches when you are going down into a mega dungeon. You you Yeah, you want to go in and get as much of the treasure as you can, but if you've only got... 10 torches and your five torches deep. Now you have to start making the choice. Do I go into that next room to see what that shiny thing is? Or do we start turning back? Cause we know that it's going to take us five torches to get back to where we were. Um, that, that sort of question to a very specific player group, like Sean is saying, you're gonna, you have to be in tune with what kind of stuff your players are actually interested in, but that can add a, a sort of an additional element of um, agency and choice to the mega dungeon that is more than just random encounter tables and monster fighting. Could you make, I think this could be fun or it could be like really hard to do, but could you make like a D&D &D roguelike in the vein of like a Spelunky 
um, or uh, maybe even Hades, although I haven't played Hades, so I don't know if this this is for sure. If people have completely lost, I'm talking about video games now. But basically <laughs> the idea, if you don't know what a roguelike is, a video game where uh, you do runs and you try to get as far through the, the game as possible. And then if you die, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. But in the uh, form of Spelunky specifically, I believe that each time you go through, it's kind of randomly generated. So you have to go through, like, I think it's like an underground kind of dirt and grass area first, and you do two or three levels of that. And then you make it to, like, maybe a lava area, and then you make it to an ice area. I don't know the actual biomes of Spelunky uh, off the top of my head. Um, but the idea being and that, why like... Not? How, you know, five five torches deep, exactly what, like you were saying, Dale. First, you've got to go through the forest to get, and that's like a whole kind of first level area. Then you get to the actual entrance of the dungeon, which is its own like valley or quarry or something like that. Then you get down into the dungeon and it's got its hundred rooms and it's got like five or six different entrances that the party can attempt to to get through. And then it's got like, it's, you know, deeper, darker sort of layers. And then it goes down into the realms of hell or something like that. Um, But if you, if you die, if there's a TPK in the dungeon or you have to come back to the village, you've got to go through all those layers again. And the, the, the challenge, the game for the GM is to keep making that interesting to go through the forest Again, as the party level themselves up, you've got to come up with higher difficulty encounters in a forest. You've got to come up with new NPCs to meet in the different kind of areas of the game to make this kind of like, this is our village, this is our home get ground, let's go spelunk the dungeon, so to speak, and come back. Would that be interesting or would that just be, be um, repetitive in a tabletop RPG context? Repetitive is the word. It's the key word. In a roguelike, that repetitive is actually, uh, to people who like roguelikes, mm. plus the repetition leads to practice, leads to mastery. Sure. That's the that's the great thing about roguelikes to people who really like them, myself included. Um, I think that for a group of D&D players who are often somewhat divided in their tastes, that can be a harder sell. If you... You know, because when you get a D&D group together, usually you're not all picking people who like the exact same thing. You're picking your friends who you really just kind of want to hang out with. And one may like fantasy, one may like sci-fi, one might like hard storytelling, one might like kicking in the door. But there's kind of a middle ground that we can meet in and sort of all have fun together. Roguelike, I think, is a very dominant flavor. Mm. Um, So... I think it's a really cool idea if you find the like exact right audience sure. for it. Um, but it, it seems like the sort of thing that happened in the old days of D&D. Yeah, right? it's kind of that, that. That's my impression. Like the, yeah. the game Rogue, I think, you know, was made by a big D&D fan who wanted randomly designed dungeons that someone could play through. Mm. Uh, and so it, it's all birthed from the same pool. But maybe in general, uh the video game has supplanted its origin sure. in that way. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you've described, Ben, is AD&D. <laughs> <Okay, laughs> it's first edition. <laughs> it's all, all of the adventures were these multi-level, not all of them, obviously, and not every group played the same way. But, you know, for the most part, it's these deep dungeons, multi-level. You get as far as you can. All right. So we can go back and we can be safe. 
but then we'll have to fight our way forward and lose resources along the way to get back yeah. to where we are now. So do we risk sleeping here in this dungeon where wandering monsters are not sure to come by, but there's definitely a chance they will. And you know, that's, that's AD and D you, you just, you've just invented AD and D congratulations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like when Uber invents a bus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, there was another email, uh, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. If you want to send us emails, uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned that before. Um, but there was another email kind of adjacent to this, which came in from George, who was asking, do doors open inwards or outwards in a dungeon? <laughs> if the party want to barricade the, like if a party's like, all right, I'm going, we're going into this room. We need a short rest or a long rest or whatever it happens to be. In we go, we barricade the door. Do you as the GM just go, yep, the door's barricaded. Or do you as the GM be like, ah, this door opens outwards. So, you know, you wouldn't be able to barricade it. The monster could just open the door from there from the outside, um, which is a uh, larger, the larger question I sort of spun this out into um, is how often do you yes end your players versus no but in terms of like players assuming that they can do something because they say that they're doing it, like barricading a door. Yeah, we barricade the door. There's, there's barrels or something in here, right? We, we barricade the door and it's like, well, you don't have the resources to barricade the door. What have you got in your inventory that says you can barricade the door? What have I said? What is the GM described in this room that says you can barricade the door? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, how how meticulous are you as GMs around that sort of thing? I think you've hit the nail on the head when it comes to the tone of the game being the deciding factor. If I were playing Five Torches Deep, for example, I would absolutely care about which way the doors go. <laughs> uh inward or outward because that's that's a sort of situation where you're like the the players are at deep odds against the environment itself the sure. environment is just as much their foe as the monsters are so yes you'd better be sure you're you're trying to sleep in a room where the doors open uh inward so that you can barricade them um, but if I were playing a more sort of classically heroic D&D game, then barricade the doors. Let them barricade the doors. That's a cool <laughs> heroic thing to do. We're going to have plaques that oh, oh, yeah, yeah, g- barricade the door. <laughs> give them that Tomb of Durin moment in, in the sure, Mines yeah. of Moria. That's a heroic sort of cool fantasy moment that they want. <laughs> and there's, there's sort of a middle ground, I think, where you can say, doesn't matter which way the door goes, in or out. You can definitely try to barricade it. Tell me, tell me how, why are you a character that can do this? What tool do you have? What, what abilities do you have that allow you to do this? Okay, you were a, a mason. All right, well, okay, you know a little bit about stonework and, and the door is made of stone. So give me a check. You, let the characters roll dice as much as they can and then have consequences for success or failure. So oh, I have this crowbar, and the, and so I'm going to wedge it in there. Okay, good. Uh, strength check, and plus two because you have a tool that's good to use or advantage. Mm-hmm. All right, so you make your strength check. Now I have a DC if monsters want to come in to roll against. I've let the characters do their thing, not only story-wise but mechanically, and I have the rules in front of me to allow me to have consequences uh, based on whatever the characters are or do 
Mm-hmm. For me, uh, this is the kind of thing that turned me into a DM, right? Like <laughs> one too many times watching. We're going to have a Dale watching... chart of like when doors open inwards and outwards. And... No, the opposite of that. It's one too many times as a player having a DM say, well, actually the door opens right. inward. Well, actually the door handle is round. No, it, and it's, it's, <laughs> it's fine, but I... Mm, no, I think one of the reasons I became a DM is so that I could never do that to anyone ever <laughs> again. Um, but, you know, it's not that it is inherently um, a, a bad thing to consider. I think more than that, it's that the role of the DM to a large extent is to be the eyes of the party. They can't see what there is, so you have to describe it to them, right? And if you haven't described to them in any great measure anything that should indicate that this door opens outwards or inwards, then when they say, I barricade the door, and you go, oh, well, actually, it opens the other direction, then you failed to be their eyes. At, at a certain point, you have to compromise and go, I didn't describe that, so what they are imagining, sure, why can't that be a part of this thing, right? Um, I think that, that that that's part of your duty as the party's eyes is to either describe it, which that's up to you whether you want to do that or not. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but you can do that if you want to do that. But... Uh, <laughs> But at a certain point, you got to compromise with what the party thinks they see that you didn't uh, specifically point out to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah. I had a player who was infamous for trying to be smarter than everybody, including the DM, on everything. Mm-hmm. And it was, well, the door is locked. Well, does it have hinges? Well, sure, doors have hinges. That's how they open and close generally, unless they slide in and out. So, you know, so well, I, I take out the hinges and I open the door that way. And... I was like, okay, I'll, I'll let that go. But then, like, every time, where does it have hinges? So then it became, well, yes, it does, but these hinges are stuck. Well, how can I unstick them? Well, you need a strength check. Guess what? It was the same strength check you would need to bash it down that you needed to get the hinges out. Congratulations. <laughs> you you outsmarted me. You opened it via the hinges, and you made that strength check. You did to, it. To loosen up. Good job. That's funny. I was thinking a similar thing. I was thinking I would require a thieves' tools check to undo the hinges. Like <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> There's, there's always a rule that is waiting for you to roll a die to see if you can do the thing you want to do. That's why I very often when I'm improvising a rule will say to the players, now I'm not setting a precedent, but in this circumstance, yes, you can try this thing so that it doesn't become this like, well, you know, one solution for this same problem uh, again and again. Last email question here. This one came in quite recently, actually, uh, from Joe. Uh, again, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com if you want to send us an email. Uh, and, of course, you can come hang out on Twitch to ask questions in the Twitch chat as well. Mm-hmm. Joe's question is, is it possible to use varied currencies slash coins between cultures in tabletop RPG games? Those were my words, not theirs, to be fair, in the way that I worded that, is it possible? Um They were sort of asking, you know, based on our discussion last week, we talked about languages and, uh, you know, whether you maintain common as a language or whether you break it up and and whether that just makes the game unnecessarily more obtuse for players. They wondered the same thing about different coins and currencies between the varied nations and cultures of a fantasy world. I'm going to give the same answer to this question, essentially, as I did to the language one, which is if your game is about it, yes. 
If you want to play the Spice and Wolf campaign about fantasy economics, then yes, you had better be prepared to deal with currency conversion because that is a core aspect of medieval economics. Um, but if you're not, wh why do you want to do this? Is realism the only reason you want to do this? And if it is, that might not be a good enough reason. Sure. I, I, I would never even think of economies in, in most of the games that I've run, except for the Acquisitions Incorporated game, because that is all about economics. It's all about business. It's all about getting the best rate of return on those investments that you're making, either in yourself or in your your staff or, or in your keep. So yes, we're definitely going to get deep into economics there. And then the next campaign I run, right back to having nothing to do with economics in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> I was just I transported into a scene from the big short for about 20 <laughs> seconds there. Yeah. <laughs> I love as well that that um, shines an interesting light on it because it's very easy to think, oh, if your game is going to be heavy into economics and like the point of different coins and different currencies, it feels like it's going to be really nitty gritty and quite, you know, serious. But then when you bring up Acquisitions Incorporated, it's like, oh, yeah. Uh, that that is not necessarily tied to um, genre in that way. Uh, something that does come to mind um, is not necessarily. I think I think there is room to do this without it being about economics, but being about you know making some narrative point. This is what I'm always looking for, right? Sure. Like uh, like if, for example. Currency is largely the same in your entire world, but you go to capital, the greatest city in this or any age, and they are using paper for money. Like that, that makes an important um, point about the difference of this city versus the rest of the world. Like, what does that tell you narratively about this city and how advanced it is? That sort of a thing. Um, another thing that, that does come to mind is that I once ended up spiraling this sort of idea into an entire video. I was sort of thinking, what is the point of Electrum, Electrum coins? You know, can there be a point to Electrum? Um, and as that concept started taking shape. I mean, it ended up being a whole discussion about black markets, but somewhere in the middle, there was a different idea that was um, maybe it is a specific regulation that's put in place for managing the sale of magic items, right? You don't want just any old Joe being able to buy a, a necklace of fireballs. So maybe you have to use Electrum coins if you're purchasing at a, a magic store. And in order to get Electrum coins, you have to go to the currency exchange and actually like put your name down on it, right? So there is a record of you making these trades. That there, there, there is room for it to make a point other than being um, entirely about. And then, and then the wizard has to file the serial number off the wand that they purchase <laughs> as, a, as a result. Uh, that's how it ended up being about black markets. <laughs> I think that uh, we can take a leaf, a page, what? A page from the book of um, MMO designers. A leaf from the tree. A leaf from the, <laughs> from the tree. tree. Take a turn, turn a new page. leaf. What am I saying? <laughs> no, we can take a page from the book of MMO designers who often introduce new currencies for a purely mechanical reason. Their in-game economy has gotten out of whack and they need to... Uh, you know, players have millions upon millions of gold coins in their inventory from adventuring so much. Um, and now when they go to a new area, they need to make it so that the characters won't just immediately get all the cool stuff from the shop by dumping the vast quantities of gold they've acquired. 
So they introduce astral diamonds or something like that. And that's the currency that's used in, in nether reach or whatever. Um, and you know, that, that kind of resets the playing field of currency. It, I think is quite frustrating for players to have all of their hard work essentially upended like that. So do that with extreme caution, but uh, it's certainly a functional way of doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. So the question you'll have to ask for all of these topics that we've been talking about language economics is, will it delight your players? Will you be, mm -hmm. be able to tell better stories because you do this? Will you be able to tell unique stories because you do this? And if the answer is not yes to one of those and a resounding yes, then it's probably better to not eliminate it completely, but you don't need to emphasize it like you might um, unless there is a storytelling element as Dale so successfully illustrated for us in terms of showing how this capital city is different than, than the rest of the realm. Mm. Cosmic Postman uh, says in chat, quote, does this spark joy? Yes, you can Konmari your campaign. Absolutely. Yes. There, what there, is the value of this campaign. thing you're adding? Does it outweigh what it would displace? Yeah. Yes. And I think every D&D campaign is a, uh, a mixture to taste of, of, of sleek Marie Kondo-ish minimalism with the sort of aggravated maximalism of a dotty library keeper from, you know, medieval France. And like, if you can get both of those in the correct proportion and proportion that you like, then you've created a very beautiful tapestry. Uh, Alpeggio, uh, sorry, struggled with that one a little bit. Alpeggio in the Twitch chat says, one of my DMs had a shop where you purchased magic items by telling stories. I think hmm. uh, uh, alternative forms of currency can be fun to play with in D&D. I know that uh, when I, you know, put put a village or put a, a safe haven in a particularly fraught location where gold probably isn't worth much to them because they're not, um, uh, uh, you know, there's nowhere else to spend it except for in this village. Um, so they'll often start trading goods instead and it's like all right well, what have you found in the dungeon that you can give me um, i'll give you you know all these resources for a low level magic item or something like that uh, back and forth telling stories i think is a really great one because it as they as alpeggio's second comment kind of goes on to say it gives players room to be creative themselves and then tell a story make something up or tell something that previously happened uh within the the campaign um so yeah alternative forms of currency can also be fun storytelling devices three things you can charge your characters to get something they want hair their blood <laughs> okay or their name <laughs> yeah here That's we magic. have a hundred thousand gold pieces we want to buy this magic item i don't want gold give me your name and watch everything grind to a halt. Mm. 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 That's some sweet that. magic flavor. Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. Particularly, it has a very fey uh, kind of vibe to mm. it. 
I mean, the ones who wrote a short story. Castle. You know, imagine yeah. what I could have done with your eyes or your heart. Yeah. Yes. Um, my sister once wrote a short story where you had to trade, right? And so there was like an abundance in the store of uh, left feet because people kept trading for right feet so that they could dance and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, you have a change of mind, so you have to change your mind, things like that. It got very metaphorical. It's very stardusty. I like it. Very Pratchett-esque. Well, speaking of things that are metaphorical, this podcast is metaphorical for our expression of love for tabletop RPGs and D&D, which makes it very sad that we have to bring it to an end uh, for today. Thank you, Sean. Um, Don't encourage him, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That is all we have time for on this week's episode of the Lawcast, the Eldritch Lawcast. Um, if you are watching this on YouTube, uh, like, subscribe to the channel. We're here every single week. If you're on an audio platform, uh, five-star ratings help get us out to more listeners. Um, we're here on Twitch every week, uh, 7 p.m. Pacific. Uh, it'll be 10 a.m. Australian next week if you're in Victoria Ooh. or New South Wales, I believe. I'm not sure if Queensland does daylight savings, but daylight they savings don't. kicks in. They escape. Um, so, uh, yes, if you are, it'll be 10 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time next week, um, 7 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Uh, did I get that right? Eastern? No, I got that the wrong way around. It's on them to figure it out now. Yeah. It's in God's hands. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Good. Uh, my name is Ben Byrne. I've been here with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, James Hake, and we will catch you all next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Abort. <laughs> Get us out of here. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Mayday. Mayday. <laughs> we really should have put that on the run sheet. <laughs> yeah. You had the right times, just in the wrong directions. It's good. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm sure they'll figure that out because I'll be like, that doesn't make sense. That's not the way the sun goes. <laughs> yeah. That's not the, the yeah. direction it travels in. <laughs>